Well, good morning. I'm happy and very privileged to stand before you in this, uh, what's referred to oftentimes as the sacred desk. Uh, in 25 years of pastoral ministry, I was never as nervous as when somebody else was standing in my pulpit. And uh, I, I felt responsible for what was uh, spoken from this perspective. And so pray for Pastor Dave. And then pray for me. Uh, this is a this is going to be an in-house message. This is this is for family. Uh, obviously, in a gathering of this size, there's there's going to be at least a few who don't know the Lord Jesus, who are not members of the family. And if that's you, I hope that you are ex- exceedingly jealous of uh, what we as believers in the Lord Jesus have by the time uh, we're done here. Uh, For the rest of you, uh, my family, my church family, my brothers and sisters, uh, my prayer for you and for me is that we would be awed, uh, just this would be an occasion when our love for the Lord Jesus would deepen because of the things that he has done for us. We're talking about adoption, about believers as children of God. In your bulletin there, there's a little outline. Um, I don't usually use an outline, but I was told I had to have one, so there it is. Three points, and all three points are the same phrase with a blank. I learned that from my pastor, and so so I'm following in his footsteps, and that's what I did. The first, the first point is uh, God is our Father by creation, and uh, anytime we say that, we want to say that uh, almost tongue in cheek. Um, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, there was a movement within liberal Christianity, if if there is actually such a thing, that wanted to declare God to be the father of all people everywhere. And consequently, if you carry that to its logical conclusion, everybody goes to heaven. There was this great uh, push about uh, the brotherhood of, of mankind. We're all, we're all children of God. Well, in the broadest sense, that's true. Uh, the scripture teaches us that we are the creatures, the creation of God, and God is our common origin. It is, we've already read this morning, it is he that, as the King James says, it's he that hath made us and not we ourselves. He made us. We didn't make ourselves. And so that makes God the person who generated us, who created us, who originated us, who caused us to exist. So, in that sense, yes, God is our Father. In Genesis chapter 2, in verse 7, or excuse me, verse 5, we read, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, and then the Lord God formed man of dust, 
from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. There's the record, there's the scriptural record of us being created by God. And that's where we get this idea of God being our Father in that sense. He is the one who brought humanity into existence. He's the one who has granted us life. Uh, he is our ultimate common ancestor, even more so than Adam. When you look at the, when you take the time to actually look at the genealogy of Jesus in Luke, which we seldom ever do, because it's generally a list of people that we know nothing about, and it's, uh, you know, this guy begot this, begot, 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 and it's just a whole long list of people. But when you get to the end of that genealogy of the Lord Jesus, we read these words in verse 38, Luke 3:38, The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So in this sense, the entire human race consists of the children of God. In the very broadest of terms, all men, all women everywhere that ever existed or that ever will exist are by definition sons and daughters of God, but not in a salvific sense, only in the sense that he is our creator. And that distinction has to be made. Which brings us to our second point, that God is our father by recreation or rebirth. And you're thinking he's already done with his first point. This is going to go quickly. We'll be out of here in about 10 minutes. Uh, uh, I keep telling you all to keep your expectations low so that you're not disappointed. Point two. God is our father by recreation or rebirth. And if you are actually taking notes, put a couple of question marks out at the end of that point two. Because there's some question about that. I'll explain it in a minute. Not, not, I, I'm really not much of a fan of statistics. I think that they're overdone and sometimes we depend upon them too much to be our guide, especially in spiritual things. I, I just don't really place a whole lot of weight on statistics. Some people love them and to you, I apologize, but I just don't care for. However, here's a statistic that I think is exceptionally helpful. The Old Testament refers to the fatherhood of God either directly or indirectly about 15 times in the entire Old Testament, 15 times. It's not a major theme in the Old Testament. He's called the father of Israel. On occasions, he's called the father of certain individuals. And there are other references to God as father, but indirectly, without actually using the term father. So I think we can conclude from that that the Jews did not generally perceive God as their father. He was the creator. He's, he's the, the sovereign God of the universe, but not father. Then we come to the New Testament, and there is this dramatic shift in the perception of God. In the New Testament, the term father 
is used of God 165 times in the Gospels. 100 times in the Gospel of John. It's a dramatic change of perception of who God is in relationship to his people. Paul uses the the term 40 times. And so there's this there's this change in people's minds in regard to their relationship to God. Whereas in the Old Testament, you, it would be easy to perceive him as distant, as removed, as sitting on his throne and ruling the universe. We see him distant in the temple, in the tabernacle. God is behind the curtain. Nobody has access to him except the high priest, and he better be careful. Or he may not survive access to God. And then we see Jesus using Father as his favorite term for God. When the disciples asked Jesus, uh, teach us to pray. John's disciples, he taught them how to you teach us to pray. And so what is the first thing that Jesus says? Pray like this, what? Our Father. We're to address him as our Father. And I believe this is one of the reasons why there's this perception of, of, of God in the Old Testament as being far separated from us in comparison to how we see him in the New Testament. When, when the Lord saves us, and I don't really, this is, this is an aside, this is just kind of a gripe that I have, and now that I have an audience, I'm going to use the opportunity. But I, I don't like the terminology that so-and-so got saved, you know, as, as, as though they, they went to the store and they got it. I, I like the more biblical terminology, the Lord saved me. He saved me. I didn't go get it. He chased me down. And he saved me. So when, when the Lord saves us, we, we speak of that in, in the biblical terms of being born again. Or the, the theological term for it is regeneration. We've been, we're given a new life. And it seems that this would be the way in which uh, we would become the children of God. Like the sonship to God that is implied at creation, then it would seem that in the new birth or in the new creation, there's a sonship implied there too. We're sons of Adam. We're sons through the Lord Jesus, the second Adam. It would seem. But Peter tells us in his first epistle that it is, it's God who has caused us to be born again and that we should conduct ourselves in this life as obedient children. But when we look at the most familiar passage in regard to the new birth, John 3, if you look carefully at that passage, this issue of sonship is not stated there. That's not the issue. It isn't explicitly stated. And Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus is, is primarily about 
escaping condemnation, not about becoming children of God. If you would, turn to John chapter 3. It's a rather long text that we're going to look at, but I think uh, context is important. Uh, there's more to the third chapter of John than verse 16. John chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 21. Very familiar passage, which carries with it inherent danger. We read over it, we're familiar with this, we know what it says, and there's a tendency to overlook things that we should pay attention to. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have what? Eternal life. That's what this passage is about. Let's continue. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's important. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Not only is this text not talking about us becoming God's sons and daughters through rebirth, through the new birth, being born again, but in verse 18, Jesus proclaims himself as the only son of God. In the King James, again, 
the word begotten is added, the only begotten Son of God. And I think that actually clarifies things a little bit. Although the word is not in the original text, it does give a better sense of what is being communicated here. Jesus was begotten. He was born of Mary by means of the Holy Spirit. And so in this specific manner, he is the only son of God. His means of becoming one of us was absolutely unique. The only son of God to be naturally born, if, if you can call the virgin birth natural. So if Jesus is the only real child of God, and if the new birth is not talking about us becoming children of God, then where does that leave us? Well, the Apostle Paul comes to the rescue and explains this to us in point three. God is our father, not by the new birth, but by adoption. And I don't know how often you think of this topic. I, I will confess that it was decades before I gave it any serious consideration. Until relatively recently, it was hard to find a book on the topic. It was, it's sorely neglected in, in theology books and in systematic theologies. If there's any room given to it at all, it's a paragraph or two at best. It, most Christians, I think, believe that our adoption is simply uh, sort of a subset of salvation. It's just kind of included in the package. Or that adoption and salvation are synonymous terms, and they're not. We're talking about two separate things. Two words that we read in Galatians chapter 4 dispel the myth that adoption and salvation or adoption and redemption are, are just two ways of saying the same thing. There are two words that clarify that for us. Look at Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And I'm breaking right into the context uh, of necessity. Verse 1, I mean that the heir, and I, and I want you to notice the terminology that's being used here, heir, child, adoption. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. What does he own? Everything. But he doesn't have it yet. He's under guardians, verse 2, and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And put a period there and stop. Now, if, if the original text had done that, I would be happy with that. That makes perfect sense. He sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. And we would all say, hallelujah. We have a redeemer. We have a savior. But the words that clarify all this are the next two words. So that. Those are the words. 
These are the words that changed my thinking about salvation and adoption. The Lord Jesus came and redeemed us for yet another purpose, for another reason. The, the phrase, so that, is a purpose clause. This is for the sake of this. This is done in order to accomplish this. With the result that. So, verse 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that what? So that he might do what? So that he might accomplish what? I mean, I, I thought for most of my Christian life that redemption was the end of the line, that that was the end game, that that was why Jesus came. And of course, that is why Jesus came. But I thought that that was, that was it. That was all. That was the package. And maybe, maybe you have thought the same thing. Maybe you think that even now. And I sort of hope you do, because this was quite a revelation to me personally. I mean, what can you add to salvation? How can it get any better that all of your sins, past, present and future are forgiven? How can it be any better? What can you actually add to having eternal life with God where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore? What are you going to add to that? The cup's full, isn't it? No. There's more. There's more. Look at these verses carefully. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's beyond redemption. We were redeemed for that. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Jesus was sent into the world by the Father to die for us and redeem us so that, or for the purpose of God adopting us as his children into his family. I would be happy to be in heaven under any circumstances. I would be happy to be the street sweeper in heaven, okay? The dog catcher in heaven. Just, just get me to heaven and we're good. All right? Forever. We're good. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. And whatever job I have there is fine. It's great. We're here. Yay. Praise the Lord. All right? No, you get to live in your father's house. In your father's God. And you're not, and, and, and you're not in, you're not in the guest room either. You're in your own room. <laughs> in my father's house, there are many rooms. Several years ago, I 
I read this statement in an old book I found by Robert Alexander Webb entitled The Reformed Doctrine of Adoption. And I don't know why it's reformed. I mean, it's just biblical. You know? There's nothing particularly reformed about it. It's just in the Bible. The Doctrine of Adoption. We read of it in Scripture. But Webb made a statement that provoked this, this change in my thinking about this whole idea of, of redemption and adoption. And, and he said this, and this was written a hundred years ago, so listen carefully. There is a sense in which our adoption as the children of God is to be the crown and glory of the entire redemptive process. The admission of sinful men through grace through the grace of adoption into the family of God with all the rights and privileges of sons in his house is in a lofty sense the culmination and climax of the blessings of redemption. I wish I had said that. This is the culmination and climax of the blessings of redemption. Adoption is the absolute mountaintop of our experience as the people of God. Adoption is the Mount Everest of eternal life with God. To quote an old beer commercial, it doesn't get any better than this. Literally, it, does not, it cannot get any better than this. And it belongs to us. I mean, redemption and salvation are infinitely wonderful blessings from God granted to us by sheer grace and mercy at an unfathomable cost to himself. The Father sent his Son, his only Son, to die and secure our salvation from himself. God sends Jesus to save us from his own wrath. Well, if he's so upset with us, why does he want to save us? Because he has set his love upon us. There is no other explanation. It's because he wanted to. He's the sovereign of the universe. He can do whatever he wants, right? And he has chosen for reasons we'll never grasp to save us. And so, He has sent His Son to save us. That's what it cost. To save rebels from His righteous and just wrath against us. Christ goes through the incomprehensible agonies of death to satisfy God's anger and to redeem us from the destruction that we deserve, then the Holy Spirit draws each person for whom Christ died, convicts each one of them of their sin, opens their blind eyes to the danger of their unregenerate condition, causes them to cry out to God for forgiveness based upon the substitutionary death of Christ on their behalf, and each one is caused to be born again. That's redemption. Now, now that God has gone to all that trouble and all that work and 
Was it work? Was it trouble to redeem us? Look at the cross. Look at Gethsemane. How much trouble was it for Christ to, to purchase us from our sins? Now that the Father has sent the Son, the Son has come and successfully purchased His people for Himself, and the Holy Spirit is drawing them to Christ, to their Savior, convicting them of sin, and regenerating them. Now that that's done, in addition to that, the Father looks upon us and grants us the status of sons and daughters, making himself our Father. How is that? even possible. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba! Father, this is the relationship we have with the sovereign ruler of the whole universe. We can speak to him as Father legitimately because he has made us his children. So we're no longer slaves, but we're sons. And if a son, then an heir. And we don't... We don't think in those terms very often. We don't think of inheritances too much. We think more of retirement, right? We think of 401ks and, and uh, pensions and that sort of thing. We don't think of inheritances very often because we just, you know, as Americans, we just don't do that like people used to. A father would, would hopefully amass a fortune, and then he would leave the vast majority of it to his firstborn son, and that's the way the, the family goes. And that would just go on and on and on. That doesn't happen anymore. We, we're not familiar with this. But we are heirs of God as our father. Look at Romans chapter 8, please. Romans 8, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, so then, brothers, and I hope that word means more now than it did half an hour ago. This is not just a term of endearment. This is a statement of fact. We are brothers and sisters because our Father is God. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are, what's the phrase? Sons of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. And a lot of people like they don't like that last phrase, you know, we're heirs as long as we suffer with him. We want to be heirs, but we don't want to suffer. The suffering with the Lord Jesus is evidence that you're a true child. But it says here that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What does that mean? Does that mean we get the same inheritance that He gets? It would certainly seem so, but that's what it says. Well, what does Jesus get as heir? Well, you might want to write this reference down. I don't think it's in the PowerPoint. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Jesus, is, Jesus inherits everything. And we're co-heirs with Him? What time is it? Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll say, and He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. And then the King will say to those on His right, the King will say to those on His right, Come you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Beloved, as the adopted children of God, we don't just live forever in the kingdom of God. We inherit it. We own it. And this has been the plan of God since the foundation of the world, to save a people for Himself and to give them everything. And that's us? How? How? Could that, how could it be that I could be included in that? That makes life in this world a whole lot more tolerable, doesn't it? You know, the, I think it's the Mormons who say, well, you know, in, in the next life you get your own planet. I don't get my own planet. I get my own universe. The whole thing belongs to me and you. We share everything. It all belongs to us. God has created it to give it to us. He loves to give good gifts to his children. And he says here, on the final day, you come inherit the kingdom that my Father has prepared for you since the foundation of the world that's been waiting for you. Come and get it. And all God's people said, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Here's a final quote from Robert Webb. To bring back man as a disobedient subject and reinstate him in heavenly citizenship and confer upon him the immunities and duties of a servant and let him take his place as a ministering spirit about the burning throne of God, this would be an exhibition of grace worthy of immortal doxologies. But grace 
is heaped upon grace and mercy is banked upon mercy and love is laid over upon love when the sinner is reclaimed and transplanted in the bosom of the Heavenly Father and made a resident in the eternal and fadeless home of God and appointed an heir to all that glory which is incorruptible, undefiled, and that fades not away. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what your perception of heaven is like, but I believe it's probably too small. This is what it means to be a child of God. And we are made children of God because He takes it upon Himself to make this judicial, forensic decision, legal decision, to make us His own. We're not subjects. We're not slaves. We're His sons and daughters. And He's our Father. And Jesus is our brother. And we're heirs of everything. So, today, just before we depart, when we hold hands and we sing, I am so glad I'm a part of the family of God, sing that with fervor. <laughs> that God has made you His own child. Father, thank You. Thank You for this immeasurable grace that You have bestowed upon us. Help us to live in the meantime, not just as good and faithful servants, but as obedient children to our kind Heavenly Father. We pray in Jesus' name.